Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Our text today, now that Noah and his family are off the ark, we're going to see the covenant God makes with them, followed by a little bit about his his family life at that point, although not much, just one account of sin in the family that 
ends up bringing blessing and curse upon the children. So God blesses Noah. A blessing from God is a gift, and here he imparts the continued gift of Genesis 1 that man can be fruitful and multiply. It's a command and a gift, a command and a blessing at the same time. Noah and his wife will be able to do this. Their sons, their wives will be able to do this. Man will not end. That is a tremendous gift that God chose to continue his creation. So Genesis 1.28's command. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I'm going to bring this up in a couple days' time when we get to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. I'm going to make the case, I'll lay it out there, that the Tower of Babel is a direct response of man to the flood. And we also have to contrast this with the idea of empire building. Man is called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And yet we gravitate towards city life instead. We don't fill the earth. We don't care for the earth. We take care of ourselves. There's an issue to that. And anyway, that's Genesis 11. That's not today. The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast. Now, this might be a question to ask your children. Why? Why will the animals suddenly be afraid of man? This is why deer run away. This is why squirrels run away. They're afraid. God has placed fear in their hearts of us by opening our mouth to eat. There's no indication in Scripture that man has eaten an animal, that man has eaten meat prior to this moment. So we are now... 1,600 years into creation. That's about a quarter of the history of this world without eating meat. I know those diet fads, um, the paleo, keto, even carnivore, uh, especially carnivore, will make the argument that our ancestors ate meat for millions of years and were the oddballs. I think a more moderate and balanced approach is good. The idea that God has given us plants to eat, yes, but they're broken. He's also given us meat to eat, but meat's broken. There's no perfect food you're going to find. Everything's broken under the sun. And so we wait for restoration. The only perfect food is Christ and his, his flesh given for us that we partake of in the Lord's Supper. It nourishes, it strengthens, it heals, it brings forgiveness. And that food is just a foreshadowing of the feast to come in paradise as we eat forevermore with with Christ at his table. So deer and squirrel run away because man eats beast. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Let me take you to Leviticus on this one. Leviticus chapter 17 Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by a life. Verse 14, the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. The Bible's pretty straightforward, actually, in saying that our life is in our blood. What happens to man if you take his blood away? What happens if the heart stops pumping the blood through the body? We die. 
I'm not going to try to get over into this and say like that our soul is in our blood or anything like that. We just, there's so much we don't know and that we can't even know because God hasn't made it known to us. And that's okay. But this is pretty clear. Don't eat blood because that's the life of the animal. Now, why give that instruction? It may be connected to the pagan practices already in the world at this time. A lot of pagan religions also recognize that the strength of the animal, the life of the beast, is in its blood. And so they often would consume that blood, even drinking blood, believing that they were then somehow harvesting or harnessing the the power, the life of that animal for themselves. So drink the blood of an ox and you'll be strengthened like an ox, that kind of thing. Not good. So the Lord is oftentimes going to set up laws in the Old Testament in order to help his people avoid these pagan lies that would otherwise sever them from him. Also, though, verses 5 and 6 combine to say that God is going to require blood to be shed if man's blood is shed. So if a man is killed like Cain, Cain feared, in chapter 4, God will avenge that death. If a beast kills man, that beast will be put to death. There are Old Testament laws about that. Uh, The goring ox, for example. However, if it's a man who kills a man, he's also to be put to death. There will be Old Testament laws coming about that as well. But verse 7 returns to verse 1. You be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it. So we've seen that now three times in the last two paragraphs worth of text as we go back to chapter 8 from yesterday. Then God said to Noah and his sons, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature. So all of man, the you and your offspring comment reminds me of a couple of things. First, the crucifixion, that the Jews cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. The greatest irony in all of Scripture, because it is, his blood does cover their sins. All of them. But also Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching on Pentecost, and he tells the crowd, this promise is for you and for your children. The promise that we have life and forgiveness in Christ. The promise of baptism that creates faith in us and welcomes us adopted as sons into a family, a kingdom. You and your offspring. Christianity is not a one and done. Christianity is not for the individual. Christianity is a family. We're a people. A holy people. What is the covenant God is going to establish with them? Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood to destroy the earth. God is going to never again send a flood across this globe to destroy his creation, to judge his creation. And the sign that he gives to show it is not declared to be a rainbow, but simply a bow. That might be news to many. Um, We think of the rainbow, and, and rainbow is correct, by the way. I mean, it's not like I'm saying this is something different. I'm just making the point that this is God's instrument of war. This is his weapon. It's like the hunter who goes out for the hunt or the soldier who comes back from battle. When they enter into their home again, what do they do with their weapon? They hang it up. 
They're done. The hunt is over. The battle's over. They hang it up. God is hanging his bow in the clouds. He's hanging his bow, his weapon of war, his weapon of judgment against us in the clouds. And what makes this a really cool picture is that if that bow hanging there were to fire, where would it fire? Right? You think of the, the bow, the rainbow in the sky. If you were to draw that string and fire, that arrow is not flying down. That arrow is not coming to strike us. That arrow was flying to heaven to pierce into the very heart of Christ. So it can be a little bit of a foreshadowing of the crucifixion that God would die, that God would take the pain in order to set us free. That God's judgment would actually turn back upon himself in order that we might live. That's a really neat picture. And we we lose it by not calling it a bow oftentimes. It is a rainbow. So you can talk to your children about rainbows. Do you like rainbows? What's the rainbow mean? All those kinds of things. Yes, the the LGBT community today has tried to take and make the rainbow their symbol. Um, it is. It strikes me as odd that it's not the same number of colors. It is six. I've read the origin of that apparently has to do with the original flag being hung on poles, like you think of a lamppost or something like that, and that if you hung a seven-colored flag, that the middle color would be obscured by the post anyway. So they just made it an even number so that they could have three stripes on either side of the pole. Okay, um, it's not God's rainbow. And it only goes to do the actual thing that God has given this to do. God is not going to judge the earth and wipe it out with a flood, even though the hearts of men are evil continuously. So here's a group of people who are clinging to their sin, their rebellion against God, the thing that God has told them is not right, it's not good, it's not going to help. They're clinging to that pridefully, and they're raising God's own symbol against him. And the irony there is God is showing them his patience. He is showing us his patience, that he has not simply wiped us out as we deserve for our sin, but instead turned that arrow around on himself and pierced his own son through. For us, to forgive us, all of us, there's no hatred to be found in the Christian heart. Repent of that if you have it, right? Um, Our neighbor, whatever their sins are, is somebody Christ died for. And so we seek to love them And by loving them, both law and gospel, it does not love our neighbor if we encourage them in their sin. It does not love our neighbor if we allow them to die apart from Christ. We have no control over that, but we can speak Christ to them, both law and gospel. They need to know that their pride is not okay. They need to know that death does come, but that there is hope. We live in such a way that our neighbors can see that we have a hope that they don't and that they would want it. Some of them. I do find it kind of interesting to ponder, is verse 13 saying, now God has set his rainbow in the clouds, or has it been there before? In other words, was Earth's atmosphere different before so that a rainbow was not possible? Was it, po- was it true that it had never rained before the flood? So again, a rainbow is not possible, and so now it is. That makes this a new thing. Or has it rained before? Has there been a rainbow before? And God has used it as a foreshadowing of 
this promise. I again, I sub- I subscribe to the bubble theory, so I sub- I. I think there's a possibility here to this idea that this is a brand new thing. I think it's the best way to take it, but I can't say it for certain. The scripture's not not going to give us quite enough. So when the bow appears in the clouds, when I bring clouds over the earth, again, sounds like that might be a new thing. Where'd the water go? It evaporated. Some of it. I will See it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. So the rainbow is a reminder to God and to us. It is a sign between two. It is like the peace treaty between God and men. You bring the treaty out every now and again so you remember. Then we get a little glimpse into Noah's family life. He's got the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 19 tells us that these from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. This is true up to this day. Every single one of us can trace ourselves back to Noah. Everyone. So biblically speaking, this whole racial conversation our culture really pushes, it's, it's not the Bible's way of talking. We're not multiple races. We're all one. Tribes, you might use that language. There are distinctions. We're not identical but we're one. If there is a distinction in race in Scripture, it comes from 1 Peter 2, which calls us a, a chosen race, a holy people. And that would be then the distinction that there are two races. There are Christians and there are those who aren't. And so it's a racial thing that isn't then by blood, but by, by the blood of Christ instead. By faith. Which would be Romans 9 and onward, As Paul says, that it's not by being a descendant of Abraham's flesh that we are saved, but we are children of the promise by being faithful. The promise was of faith. Anyway, our short account here of Noah's family life, he plants a vineyard. He's a worker of the soil, so he's getting into agriculture of various kinds. He overindulges himself on his wine. This is the first time wine is seen in the Bible, And it's also abused the first time it's seen. He gets drunk. That's not good. That would be sin um, because you're no longer in control of yourself. You're not able to help and serve your neighbor. You just pleased yourself. It's not to say drinking wine is wrong. If it was, Christ would not have turned water into wine at Cana. He would not have given us wine to drink in the Lord's Supper. But getting drunk is a sin in Scripture. Seen here already. He lays down naked in his tent. Canaan's father, Ham, sees him, mocks him to his brothers. That's what, that's, I mean, you can ask your kids what's wrong here, what's the issue in this text. It's that he mocks him. Like, he sees his father naked. He doesn't cover him up. He goes outside and he, he starts gossiping with his brothers about it. He's embarrassing his father instead of respecting him. That's the biggest issue. Now, Shem and Japheth are going to treat their father with respect. They don't want to see their father's nakedness, so they're going to walk backwards, holding basically another garment between their shoulders here, and they gently walk backwards and just lay this thing across their father's body, so he's now covered. When Dad wakes up, he recognizes that something's happened. Now, the question here is, how does he know? How does he know his youngest son did this? 
It could certainly indicate that over their time together of over 100 years at this point, he was 500 when they are born, uh, he's over 600 now since he's off the ark. I'm not even told how long after that this is. He's, he knows his sons. Right? He knows which sons act in different ways. He knows their personalities. He knows that Ham is the likely culprit of who would make fun of him in such a situation, who would seek to embarrass him. And so he curses his son. He curses his grandson. He curses his own family tree. Is this from God or is this from man? Is this God's doing through Noah or is this Noah's anger? I don't know. But it, it happens. This is why you should be careful speaking curses as a Christian. Um, our God hears our prayers. Noah prays to the Lord to curse Canaan, and he does. And the Canaanites will ever be enslaved to God's people. In fact, God will take the land of the Canaanites in the future and take it from them and give it to the the people of Shem and Japheth, the Israelites. Shem specifically. So, the highest blessing goes to Shem, that God would be his God, Canaan his servant. The second best blessing goes to Japheth, that God would bless him by enlarging his people and that he would get to live with Shem and that Canaan would serve him too. And then Canaan gets the raw end of the deal. Ham not even mentioned. Ham skipped. We go down to Canaan. That Canaan would be a slave to both. That's what we're going to see some of starting in the next chapter. And again, you're going to see it throughout the books of Exodus, Joshua, and so forth. Noah finishes out 350 years after the flood for 950 years total, and he dies. This is a break from the normal pattern back in chapter 5, where every other one of those nine generations, the first nine, ended with that they had other sons and daughters. We're not told that about Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth may well be it. So tomorrow, we'll continue on with the family tree and see the, how the nations come from these brothers. Let us praise the Sing for